The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear, superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Despite the words of the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, California's farms are the targets of ICE agents. They're looking for illegal immigrants. We have that story. Last week's unusual late February cold snap and hard freeze is threatening crops throughout the state. Central Valley Project water customers got the bad news this past week. We have the numbers. Will Southern California's Metropolitan Water District take over the building of the Delta Tunnels? And have you heard of the Nutria? No, it's not an artificial sweetener. It's a 20-pound rat that's invaded California's wetlands. It's imperiling the state's levees. Oh, you want some good news? Well, we finally got a bit of rain in the valley and snow in the mountains. There's that. It's the KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The United States Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, known as ICE, targeted at least three more valley farms with employee audits. It was going on just as the whole ag world was convening in Tulare for the World Ag Expo. And concern and fear continues to spread across Central Valley farms and thousands of farm workers after three more farms were hit by those audits. They included Pittman Family Farms, Poindexter Nut Company, and Fresh Select LLC. Pittman is a poultry farm in Sanger. They employ about 5,000 workers. Poindexter grows and packages almonds, cashews, walnuts, and pecans in Selma. And Fresh Select packages and cold store citrus in Dinuba. The fourth farm, B-Sweet Citrus and Fowler, also received an audit notice. Word spread quickly throughout the B-Sweet Citrus staff. About 40 of the 500 workers stopped showing up. It's rumored that the increased ICE actions are specific to California, a retaliation for the state's self-declared status as a sanctuary state for undocumented immigrants. Interestingly enough, as these ICE arrests were being made, the USDA Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, was in California, speaking at the World Ag Expo in Tulare, as well as touring Central California farms. When he was visiting a dairy farm, he told Fresno TV's ABC 30 News that farms were not the target of ICE raids. ICE are not after the people out here working on our farms. I know there's an anxiety there. The president made it very clear. He wants a criminal element of illegal aliens out of this country, and that's what ICE is doing. Apparently, he didn't get the memo. And there was a memo. A press release from the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office that read, ICE no longer exempts classes or categories of removable aliens from potential enforcement. All of those in violation of the immigration laws may be subject to immigration arrest, detention, and if found removable by final order, removal from the United States. The Fresno Bee reached out to the Department of Agriculture for clarification about Secretary Purdue's remarks, but a spokesman refused to comment. Still, California's farm labor shortage was a big topic at the World Ag Expo. We have to have a process that these people can be gainfully employed, and you know, we'd love to see a pathway to citizenship. I personally would love that. Uh, we also are very supportive of the DACA process. That's Kevin Abernathy of the Milk Producers Council. A lot of labor challenges are facing California this year. Brad Gehring is a San Joaquin County wine grape grower. He told the California Farm Bureau Federation that besides the increasing lack of available labor, his labor costs are up 40%, some of which is due to the increase in the minimum wage level.
Also on the farm labor news front, there's a bill working its way through Congress, H.R. 4760, called the Securing America's Future Act. It includes an Agricultural Guest Worker Act, also known as the AG Act, which would create a new agricultural visa program. H.R. 4760 has received the endorsement of the American Farm Bureau Federation, but the California Farm Bureau Federation says this act isn't good enough. California Farm Bureau President Jamie Johansson said the AG Act in its current form contains a number of features that would harm the current immigrant employees on whom California's farms and ranches depend. In addition, it would mandate use of the E-Verify electronic workplace eligibility system, which could affect a large proportion of current agricultural employees. Johansson says they will press for a better solution. Over the next 10 years, this country's share of world trade in agricultural products like wheat, corn, soybeans, and such, that share will likely shrink because of fast-growing competition from other producing nations. Nevertheless, we do still have agricultural exports growing. But just under 3% a year, Agriculture Department analyst David Stallings helps put together the USDA's annual 10-year look ahead, and it has the value of U.S. ag exports rising from about $140 billion this fiscal year up to about $180 billion by the end of the projection period. About $8 billion of that growth will come from the traditional bulk products, corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, cotton, and such. But the biggest gains are in high-value product, horticultural exports, processed products that are accounting for an increasing part of our agricultural trade. They already account for 66% of all ag export value. In 10 years, it could be almost 70% with an expected $30 billion increase in sales from current levels. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. A warm, dry start to February meant permanent crops such as nuts, tree fruits, and wine grapes budded out and flowered earlier than usual. Then record cold temperatures hit much of California's Central Valley last week, and that's a recipe for disaster. A hard freeze occurred in many areas. That's when overnight temperatures dropped to 28 and lower for several consecutive hours. Not only does that deliver a fatal blow to this year's developing fruits and nuts, it can be deadly for the entire plant. Many growers, though, took protective measures, especially early thorough irrigation of the soils. Citrus and almond growers, well, at least those who could afford it, hired helicopters to fly over their orchards in an effort to raise temperatures in the early morning hours. It's still early in the process, though. After all, it's still winter, and farmers are still evaluating any possible damage to their crops. First, the good news. Washington State, much of Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming are doing very well in terms of snowpack. That was USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, who says the bigger problem is that the other seven of the 11 western states face significant likelihood of below-average snowpack. We are seeing, as we move well past the halfway point of the western winter wet season, extremely low snowpack volumes as you move into states like California, Oregon, Nevada, and points south and east from there. He points to one specific example. The all-important Sierra Nevada watershed areas now containing an average of just four inches of liquid in the high elevation snowpack as of mid-February. That is only about 20 percent of what is typical for this time of year. He says even if that area sees normal precipitation for the rest of the season, the snowpack would still be below average. It would take truly a late February and March miracle 
miracle to bring this snowpack up to a level that would approach normal, and it's not expected to happen at this point. We've gotten so deep into the season. Meanwhile, with the snowmelt season due to start in a few weeks, low levels of snowpack can lead to other problems. We will expect extremely low runoff through the rivers and streams that feed the reservoirs that supply water to much of the western United States. The only saving grace in that is that we still have reservoir levels for the most part fairly robust following last year's bounteous wet season. We had a really good wet season in 2016-17, and so for most states, except in the far southwest, such as Arizona and New Mexico, we have good reservoir storage still at this point. Very low levels of snowpack also can worsen conditions for wildfires. As the snow melts off some of the lower elevation areas, it exposes the meadows and some of the rangelands to a much longer period of drying and open weather, and given the fact that we have the Mediterranean climate in California, for example, we don't expect any rainfall from May through September. So you have a longer and an extended drying season that opens up some of those lower elevation areas to wildfire. He adds that another drought is adding more stress to an ecosystem that was already trying to recover from years of it. We've had five to six years of drought out of the last six to seven years, depending on location, and that strain is starting to mount on the western ecosystems. So it goes beyond water supply, and it starts affecting some of the native flora and fauna across the west that we've had so many dry years almost consecutively. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. There are no California crop reports this week, but we have some commodity reports for you. The 2017 grape crush totaled 4.23 million tons. That's up then less than half of a percent from the 2016 crush of 4.21 million tons. The 2017 average price for all grape varieties was $775. That's up 1.5% from 2016. Grape growers in the Mid-Central Valley, counties like Madera, Fresno, Kings, and Tulare, had the largest share of the state's crush at 1.4 million tons. The average price per ton in that district, $304. You want to make more money? Move your land to Napa. Grapes produced in District 4, that's Napa County, received the highest average price of $5,204 per ton. That's up 11% from 2016. California's tomato processors reported they have or will have contracts for 12 million tons in 2018 of processing tomatoes. That's an increase of 4.3% from what was reported under contract last August. Processors estimate that the contracted production for 2018 will come from 240,000 acres, producing an average yield of about 50 tons per acre. The contracted planted acreage forecast is a 3% increase from the record low acreage reported under contract back in August of 2017. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at kste.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. The Bureau of Reclamation has announced the initial 2018 water supply allocation for many Central Valley project contractors. This allocation is based on a conservative estimate on the amount of water that will be available for delivery to CVP water users. It reflects current reservoir storages, precipitation, and snowpack in the Central Valley and Sierra Nevada. First, the bad news. Reclamation will not be providing an initial allocation of water to north of Delta contractors at this time. This is due to the current sparse inflow to Shasta and Folsom Dams from the Sierra. 
Should conditions change, the CVP supplies could also change. Among the other not-as-bad news, south of Delta contractors are allocated 20% of their contract total. For Friant Division contractors, they're looking to get 30% of Class 1 supplies. Eastside Water Service contractors, including the Central San Joaquin Water Conservation District and the Stockton East Water District, will receive 100% of their contract totals. How much total land was in our nation's farms last year? Ryan Cowan of the Agriculture Department's National Agricultural Statistics Service says for 2017. The acres of farmland was estimated at 910 million acres, and that was down a million acres from 2016. And when looking by sales class, six in total, ranging from $1,000 to over $1 million in sales. We saw a decrease in those smallest sales classes and then a slight increase in the largest. However, the average size of farms in the U.S. rose by a modest two acres in 2017. Cowett says that increase comes mostly from the higher sales class categories. The three largest sales classes tended to drive some of that increase, whereas the three smaller sales classes decreased actually in average size or else remained unchanged from the previous year. All told, there were just over two million farms in the U.S. last year. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Calling it a forest health crisis, a coalition proposes steps to address tree mortality here in California. The California Forest Watershed Alliance recommends increased forest thinning, and they want improved funding for forest management and other steps. The U.S. Forest Service announced this week that another 27 million California trees have died in the past year. That brings the total number of dead trees in the state to 129 million. USDA is forecasting net farm income to drop to its lowest level in 12 years in 2018 to $59.5 billion, down more than 50% since a record high in 2013. American Farm Bureau Federation Market Intelligence Director John Newton says the projection highlights the tough financial times farmers and ranchers are dealing with. We've been experiencing now three years of low farm income, so a lot of farmers are looking at ways to reduce their fixed costs, make more efficiencies on the farm, and finding ways to get financing of operating loans as we approach this year's planting season. It's very important to be fiscally smart going into this year. Newton says there are alternatives farmers can take to improve their financial situation. One of the things that we're seeing when we look at the information is on farm household income. That means the money from farming. The median household income on farm income has been negative for more than 20 years. So in addition to cutting costs, it's also important to think about off-farm sources of income that can really help bridge the gap from the poor returns from farming. He says there are several uncertainties in 2018 that could change the projection. We've seen over 130 days of no measurable rainfall in parts of Oklahoma and Texas. So if we see those kind of drought conditions persist, that could lead to some higher prices. Enhancing the trade agreements could lead to higher prices. So there's a lot of uncertainty going into 2018. This is a forecast from USDA, so it will be revised as more information on supply and demand becomes available. Michael Clements, Washington. According to the USDA, fruits and vegetables led the way last month in food price hikes. Anne Marie Coons, USDA economist, has the details. Looking at fresh fruits and vegetables, this is where we saw the largest increases from December to January. Fresh fruit prices rose 1.7%. Fresh vegetables were up 1.6%. And then looking at processed fruits and vegetables, so these are the vegetables and fruits you buy in cans um, and even frozen, those rose 2.2% from December to January. 
Why the price hikes in fruits and vegetables? You might think it's demand. A bigger reason, the increased cost of shipping those fruits and vegetables across the country. If your risk management strategy includes crop insurance, you need to be aware that this season's purchase deadlines are fast approaching. It's a good time to talk about crop insurance because we do have sales closing dates on a number of spring planted crops, and that's what we're looking at for the upcoming 2018 planting season. Most of those closing dates is February 28th or March 15th. That was Rob Johansson, USDA's Acting Deputy Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation. It does vary a little bit by crop and by state. So again, we would point out to producers that they should be looking at their crop insurance plans and their risk management strategies and visiting with their crop insurance agents as soon as possible to understand their options. He says one important reason to see your agent is to discuss some of this year's changes. We did offer increased flexibility uh, to producers by removing the June 1 certification deadline from the conservation compliance provisions and will instead refer to the premium billing date. We also allow policyholders to choose different unit structures by practice, by either irrigated or non-irrigated, and that's something that producers have been asking about. In other changes... We also offer a new insurance plan option this year for crop triticale. Insurance for triticale is available in selected counties in California, Idaho, Kansas, Oklahoma, Oregon, Texas and Washington. He mentioned changes to the stacks policy that insures cotton and pointed to a change in insurance for livestock or livestock products. Those products in total were subject to a cap of $20 million in premium and A&O operation and maintenance from the crop insurance companies. So right now the House and the Senate agreed to remove that $20 million cap on insurance for livestock and that will offer livestock producers and producers of livestock products more options going forward with the crop insurance programs. Crop insurance is an important part of the farm safety net. You know, we had a lot of hurricanes last year, wildfires and droughts, devastated parts of the South, Midwest, Northern Plains and California. Of course, we have losses across the United States, but generally not quite as large as those. It's a stark reminder that agriculture is inherently a risky business. He says 89% of the principal cropland area, or more than $100 billion in liability, is covered under federal crop insurance. Thus far, payments for crop insurance losses has um, totaled about a billion dollars for 2017, and we're not finished with the season yet, so that is likely to go up as we move forward into the 2018 crop year. Again, the sales closing dates are February 28th and March 15th. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. In a dramatic twist on the Delta Tunnel saga, Southern California's powerful Metropolitan Water District is exploring the feasibility of owning the majority stake in that controversial project, a move that raises fears of a water grab. The Sacramento Bee says the plan is floated by three board members of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. The plan would pour an extra $6 billion or more into the tunnel's plan beyond what it has already pledged, enabling the twin tunnels to get built at the same time. Facing a significant funding shortfall, the Brown administration announced recently it was scaling back the project to just one tunnel for now. The Delta Tunnels Project, also known as the California Water Fix, has been embraced by urban agencies because they can spread the costs over millions of taxpayers. Metropolitan believes its customers would get rate increases of about $1.90 to $2.40 a month for its share of a single tunnel project. Metropolitan has already promised to pay for about 25% of a twin tunnels project. Now, a bigger role for Metropolitan raises the specter of a Southern California water grab in the Delta, reports the Sacramento Bee, where landowners, local governments, and many environmental groups already view the project with deep suspicion. 
Northern California critics were dismayed when Metropolitan spent $175 million buying a cluster of islands in the Delta back in 2016, possibly to help with construction of the tunnels. Jeffrey Mount is a water expert with the Public Policy Institute of California. He told the Bee that the idea of owning a majority stake in the tunnels makes a certain amount of sense for Metropolitan. The agency has a recent track record of building major water storage projects on time and under budget. The proposal could also pencil out for Metropolitan because it would offset the construction costs to its Southern California ratepayers by charging other water districts to use the tunnels. The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavinto Insecticide from Bayer. And now let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Farm Service Agency announced another year of high activity in its farm loan programs. Hardworking farm families across the country access nearly $6 billion in new credit, either directly or guaranteed through commercial lenders in 2017. At year's end, the Farm Service Agency was assisting more than 120,000 family farmers with loans totaling over $25 billion. As concerns over the population decline of monarch butterflies continue, the American Farm Bureau Federation says farmers and ranchers can and should take steps to prevent any future burdensome regulations. AFBF Congressional Relations Director Ryan Yates says farmers and ranchers have an opportunity to improve pollinator and monarch health as monarchs migrate across rural America. Farmers and ranchers are in a unique position to be able to help provide for new habitat to increase the ability for these monarchs to grow and maintain sustainable numbers for the years ahead. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been petitioned to list the monarch butterfly under the Endangered Species Act. Yates says farmers and ranchers are concerned about the effect the listing would have on the long-term recovery of the species and the potential regulatory burdens. He says this has prompted farmers and ranchers to seek ways to improve monarch health. We've seen farmers across this habitat looking at how they can participate, provide new conservation areas and habitats for the butterfly to ultimately preclude the government from getting involved. He encourages all farmers and ranchers to get involved in the efforts. We encourage them to reach out to their county farm bureau, their state farm bureau, to look and ask for resources about how they can participate in conservation efforts and identify state, local, nonprofit resources that can help give them the best practices that they need. And across the ag industry, we look to create new opportunities and new resources for farmers in the months ahead. Chad Smith, Washington. United States of America. Erin Hamlin, the 2014 bronze medalist. She's the flag bearer for Team USA. Everybody's getting some pictures. <laughs> Sounds from the opening ceremonies of the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. Many Americans watching the event and the subsequent games of athletic competition here at home probably echo the sentiments of Lisa Ferguson for those who have the opportunity to travel to South Korea to experience the Olympics up close and personal. I just wish all those folks who are traveling to Korea have a lovely time, cheer on our team. I wish I could go to the Olympics and watch some of the events. 
Yet Ferguson, with the Agriculture Department's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, says those at the Olympics, whether athlete or spectator, must pay close attention when it comes to any gifts or souvenirs of a food or plant variety they wish to bring back home. The reason is potential animal and plant health threats like invasive pests and diseases. So, for example, threats to livestock and poultry include such things as foot and mouth disease, which could affect cattle and swine, highly pathogenic avian influenza in turkeys and layer hens, significant economic impact, significant loss for producers. While Andrea Samao of USDA APHIS notes threats to our nation's plant and tree crop producers, such as Exotic fruit flies are one of the world's most dangerous agricultural pests. They can attack hundreds of different types of fruits and vegetables. The eggs and larvae of fruit flies are very small and can easily hide inside the fruit or vegetables that someone might want to bring back into the United States. Now, for clarification, commercial entities can import ag goods, but only with proper permitting and inspection from entities such as USDA APHIS and U.S. Customs and Border Protection. As for a tourist hoping to bring home a fresh food item from South Korea, or any country for that matter. Just to buy that off the shelf in Korea and bring it back in, we don't have those assurances that the appropriate processing has been done. APHIS's international travel webpage, found at www.aphis.usda.gov, within the Resources tab on the front page, provides a list of do's and don'ts in terms of what is allowed in our country from another nation, food and plant-wise. But by way of summary, Ferguson says no meat, poultry, or egg products can be brought back to the U.S. And it's not just cuts of meat or ground meat products from another country prohibited from coming into the U.S., but also commercially produced and purchased items. Noodles, and we'll have some type of a meat product in them. Mooncakes, they can have a filling, meat products like minced pork or a duck egg yolk in the middle. Andrea Samal says as for fresh produce, seeds, and even ornamental plants, such as any type of potted plant or a bonsai from another country. As a general rule, fruits and vegetables and plants and plant products are generally not allowed into the United States. On the other hand, commercially preserved and packaged items like those found in airport gift shops are usually safe to bring back. So Sabal says think products like teas or bakery goods. Products that would be sugared or candy, chocolate jams and preserves, things of that nature would be allowed into the U.S. And as a reminder, such food-based items must be declared to Customs and Border Protection when you return home from international travel. This is important in that while USDA's guidelines for bringing back food and plants from a foreign country are general in scope, admission of any specific item could be prohibited depending on the sudden development of pest and or disease outbreaks anywhere around the world. Sabao says that is why it is important for travelers to ask questions ahead of travel through the APHIS website Travelers page. Our experts can help you make reasonable choices and avoid delays, fines, and the heartbreak of having a treasured memento from your travels taken from you. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. If you're a grower, you're probably familiar with biochar, basically slow-burned waste materials such as wood. Most people know that biochar improves soil health as well as reducing the need for fertilizers. Milt McGiffin is a UC Riverside Extension Specialist. He's been studying biochar for years, and he says if farmers want more information about biochar, there's a very good source. There's a lot of sources uh, for information on biochar, but probably the best clearinghouse for all of them is the International 
International Biochar Initiative. So if you just Google IBI or International Biochar Initiative, you'll eventually come to their webpage. They have a lot of white papers. They review the scientific literature every month. Uh, they have experts on there. They do webinars. Uh, if you join and become a member, you get access to the webinars, things like other things that other people don't. But there's a lot of free stuff there, too. So just by doing that, you'll find them. There's a number of other sources on the web, and, and I do a biochar blog, which anybody's welcome to join in on. So if you Google the biochar blog, you should be able to find it. Another website with more information on biochar basics is biocharfarms.org. Have you heard of the Nutria? No, it's not a protein supplement. No, it's not an artificial sweetener. It's a giant rat, a 20-pound swamp rodent. And we're talking with Valerie Cook-Fletcher. She's a senior environmental scientist of the Invasive Species Program with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And Valerie, the Nutria is a rodent that I bet a lot of people have never heard of, and yet it poses a rather big threat to California's levees in the Delta area and elsewhere in the state. And it's uh, probably a, a pest that uh, is going to be on people's radar for a while because uh, you people have just uh, discovered 20 of them in the Delta. Absolutely. And, and the count is uh, is now up to 25 so far, um, with a few additional confirmed in some, some other locations. Well, let's talk about this giant rodent, the Nutria. It's smaller than a beaver. It's uh, bigger than a muskrat. And where did it come from? So they're native to southern South America, um, but they were originally introduced in, um, in the U.S. for their fur. So there was a fur trade back in the 30s and 40s. Um, and, you know, they were introduced in California and, and released and persisted for some time before they were eradicated in the 60s. Um, there's, there are still populations that are um, present and, and doing extensive damage in other states, such as Louisiana and um, the Chesapeake Bay area, and also Oregon and Washington. You know, in California, we have some, some speculations about um, whether they were intentionally reintroduced. But, you know, at, at this point, we're not exactly clear on, um, on their method for, for this reappearance. And to be clear, it's illegal to bring them into California, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, they are a restricted species. So um, the Department of Fish and Wildlife has them listed as a restricted live animal. And then um, the Department of Food and Agriculture also has them listed as an A-rated pest um, that warrants um, quarantine and um, control restricted by multiple agencies. Yeah, besides the uh, burrowing nature of this uh, creature, which can certainly undermine fragile levee systems, it also harbors diseases like tuberculosis that could spread uh, of humans and animals, doesn't it? Correct. Um, as well as like septicemia and blood and liver flukes. Um, you know, there are a number of different diseases and parasites that, that they can transmit to, to humans, pets and livestock as well. So not good news for a water supply system. And it is a prolific breeder, I understand. Something like, uh, what, 200 babies a year? Um, there's been some misinterpretation of that information. From the time a female becomes reproductively mature, which um, is as early as four to six months of age, um, she can result in over 200 additional nutria. So that is her reproductive output as well as her first litter's reproductive output. You know, these things become reproductive by four to six months of age, and um, they can produce three litters per year and then turn around and breed back 
you know, within two days of having a litter. So um, with as many as 13 young per litter, that adds up very, very quickly. And then those youngsters can spread out for what, 50 miles or so? Yes, um, up to 50 miles. And nutria are, um, they're not territorial animals. They they live in social groups and family groups. So they're typically like a dominant male and several mature females that are reproductive and some juveniles. But um, juvenile males, as they begin to, to age and reach reproductive maturity, they're driven out from the family group by the dominant male. So those males, we see dispersal up to 50 miles. Um, and, and some dispersal of females as well. But so not only does their population size grow very rapidly, their geographic extent can also grow very rapidly. So where have you found them in California and in what sort of environments are you finding them? Um, we have found them in wetlands, uh, managed wetlands in Merced County. Um, they've been confirmed on San Luis National Wildlife Refuge um, in private ponds near the Merced River, um, on additional managed wetlands in Stanislaus County, in an irrigation canal um, out on Water District property near other managed wetlands in Fresno County. And then they were also recently confirmed um, on private property up in Tuolumne County. And what were the telltale signs that indicated that there were nutrients present? Initial find um, in March of 2017, uh, there was some damage being done in managed wetland pond areas that they um, initially just attributed to beaver. So they had a trapper come out looking for beaver, um, and that's when they just incidentally found this female. Um, but typically what we see and what we're looking for is um, a lot of damaged emergent vegetation. So Typically, there are floating cuttings, so tules and cattails. Um, they really go for the basal portions of plants. They like to eat the the tubers and the roots, so they they sort of rip it up out of the soil, and then they eat the basal portions and leave a whole lot of cuttings um, just floating in the water. So you you end up with um, very large areas of just cleared vegetation with quite a bit of cuttings just floating or piled up to create feeding and grooming platforms. And seeing how they weigh 15 to 20 pounds uh, on average, I was amazed to learn they can consume up to 25% of their body weight each day. Yeah, yeah. It adds up very quickly and does a lot of damage to um, you know the plant community itself, but also um, there's a lot of soil erosion. And um, eventually, you know, large populations can convert those, those wetland and marsh habitats just to open water um, and mudflats and coastal areas. And the reason for the great concern by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife have to do with the fact that this burrowing creature can really do some serious damage to our fragile levee systems, especially all those privately managed levees around farmland. Sure. And, you know, we've talked about how they live in these large um, family and social groups. And, you know, they don't build lodges. They burrow in and, and that's, you know, sort of their, their escape habitat. And so when you have these large family groups burrowing in um, to levees and banks, you know, they can they can burrow in up to six meters deep, but up to 50 meters in. Um, they build multi-level um, burrows. And so, you know, as, as population sizes and densities build up, that that's going to have some serious implications for California's water conveyance system, um, you know, for, for water movement, but also for um, irrigation 
for agriculture um, and water supply systems as well. The soil left on top of the mound, is there a a signature for the uh, nutria, much like uh, the gopher or a mole would have? Well, so they don't burrow um, vertically like those animals do. They typically look for um, very steep banks, so they burrow in horizontally. So much like you would look for like a a muskrat burrow, they're quite a bit bigger. Um, But, you know, I wouldn't say that there are distinguishing characteristics other than um, just a very large burrow into um, the side of fairly steep banks. So for landowners who live near levees or uh, maybe farmers who have property with wetlands that they're managing, would these burrows on a levee be towards the bottom on the dry side or on the wet side of the levee, if you will? They would be on the wet side. Um, And typically, at least, you know, we're still learning here in California and, and making observations, but what we have learned based on information in other states is that typically the openings to those burrows are below the water line. And so um, as water levels change, it may reveal those openings, but they're not always apparent unless you wind up with a levee breach or, or water loss or other damages. So, um, you know, typically what we look for is those telltale signs are those floating cuttings that we talked about because, you know, these are herbivores that they stay in the vicinity of, of a reliable food source. And so those, you know, with the, the vast amount of vegetation that they eat every day, they, you know, they eat quite a bit, but they waste up to 10 times that much every day. So it's, it's very apparent when they're, they're present based on the wasteful feeding behavior and, and the vegetation that they leave behind. In order that people don't confuse the nutria with the beaver or the muskrat, what are some identifying features of a nutria? So identification can be difficult when we look at um, overlapping size classes. So small beavers and large nutria have an overlap and juvenile nutria and large muskrats have an overlap. But, um, you know, they're very difficult to tell apart unless you're very close to the animal itself, which is you know, why we, a lot of the reports we've had of Nutria recently have, have turned out to be muskrats. So if you're close enough to be able to see or you have reliable photographs, um, the, the key distinguishing characteristic is the white whiskers. So Nutria and muskrats can both have white muzzles, but they have different colored whiskers. Um, so the Nutria have white whiskers and muskrats, as well as beaver, have dark, um, almost black whiskers. Some other distinguishing characteristics, the beavers have that characteristic wide, flat paddle tail. Nutria have long, slender, um, pretty much hairless, round tails. Muskrats have, have that same long, slender, hairless tail that's sort of um, compressed from side to side. And so in cross-section, it's almost, almost kind of triangular, but it's very difficult to see that unless you're up close. One of the other characteristic things that we look for is um, there are some differences in swimming behavior. So um, if you see an animal in the water, um, muskrats use their tail um, to help propel them while swimming. So there's a serpentine movement where their tail is sort of, you know, that S-shaped side to side to help them propel through the water. Whereas with nutria, the tail just kind of drags behind, it just trails behind. And I guess that might be a sign, too, if you see tracks in the ground, that tail drag from its foot-long tail. Sure, yeah. The the tracks are often accompanied by a, a tail drag. It, the muskrats do not have webbed hind feet, 
whereas nutria do, as do beaver. Um, however, beavers back feet, all of their toes are webbed, but with the nutria, um, their back toes are webbed with the exception of the one outer toe. So they have, you know, they have one outer toe that's free from webbing. And so sometimes that's present, um, or, or visible in tracks depending on the quality of the, of the track itself. But that's, that's characteristic. If you can see webbing and a, and a slender, um, tail drag. That's what we're looking for. So let's say somebody spots a nutria, they've identified it. What steps do they take next? They need to immediately report it to the Department of Fish and Wildlife or their local county ag commissioner. Um, If they're on federal or state property, such as a a state wildlife area or a national wildlife refuge, then they should immediately report it to their local staff. But um, either to the Department of Fish and Wildlife or the county act commissioner if they're on any other properties. And the number for uh, CDFW, I believe, is 866-440-9530. Yeah, that's to our um, invasive species hotline number. Um, or there's additional information on our website for online reporting there as well. Wildlife.ca.gov. Correct. It's it's the nutria, a giant invasive swamp rodent known for destroying wetland habitats and damaging levees, and it's being found on Sacramento's doorstep. If you are surrounded by levees or streams, lakes, ponds, be looking for the nutria. Valerie Cook-Fletcher, Senior Environmental Scientist of the Invasive Species Program with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, thanks for a few minutes of your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.